Please remain standing. We're going to read now the Word of God out of James chapter 2. I'll first read to you the thesis of the book of James. And we'll be dealing with a, uh, a word in it. The word doubting is going to be introduced for us, so I'm going to point that out. So let's, let's read James 1, verse 1. You can see it on the handout on page 2. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now that word doubting, you'll notice I have in verse 6 there, diakrinomenos, Okay, so take note of that. We'll be talking about that in the text that we deal with today. And we'll be studying verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read the whole second chapter, though. So look now uh, at midway on page 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Page 3. Oh, lied. Page 4. Very top. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Page 6. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Page 7. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Page 8. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, 
If it does not have works, is dead. In the context there is a confession of faith. says he has faith. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is, also, is dead also. Please be seated. Just to be clear, we're not spending our time in the middle section on F today, but I want to make sure that you understand that that middle section of James is talking about a confession of faith. It's abundantly clear from the context. It's not talking about faith requiring works to be a saving faith. It is teaching that a confession of faith is insufficient to accept someone's profession if they do not have works. That's what the text is teaching. And so you see that a man is justified by his works. That's the idea. And so we'll deal with that in detail. And we may spend multiple weeks on it because it's such a key verse. I talked to you at the beginning in my introduction to James how important it is in terms of the way that Romanists use it to abuse the doctrine of justification. And they try to pit James against Paul. And they'll go to Galatians and Romans and try to interpret them through James. So they make James the central document of the New Testament for interpreting the doctrine of justification. Romans is the Magna Carta of the New Testament. Romans is the most systematic, most clear, most orderly laying out of the doctrine of the New Covenant in the New Covenant. It is the text that we ought to use as a line of argumentation that is abundantly clear and very plain. And so we need to do that and understand that the book of James is not contradicting Paul. Now, we're not going to spend the rest of the time there. Um, What we're going to do today is focus on the first 13 verses. So... I talked to you about the fact that uh, back in verse 6, it talks about um, how we should ask in faith with no doubting, diakrinomenos. Okay, so that diakrino, that's, that's the root that's going to be coming up, so I'm drawing your attention to it again. So we're getting in the, in the, um, in the chiasm of the book of James, verses 1 to 13 are E, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 is E. The center of the book is the chunk that's the most controversial piece, uh, verses 14 to 26. So we're coming close to that. So when we, when we pass the center of the chiasm, what we'll start to do is compare sections backwards. Okay, so we'll, we'll be looking at them side by side so we can see the relationship of those chunks of text. But chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So, the word partiality there is literally with the receiving of the face. Okay, so it's two words just jammed together. It's face and the receiving of jammed together. So the idea here of receiving the face of a person, partiality is a good translation. And we need to deal with partiality in terms of 
taking things on the superficial or outward appearance, or recognizing persons rather than recognizing law, process, and justice. Okay? Law, process, and justice versus a bias towards faces, towards people you recognize. We all have a natural, since the fall, a natural in our sin nature tendency to be biased towards the things we are familiar with. And in addition to that, there are certain things like beauty, wealth, and cleanliness that we very specifically associate with goodness in a way that is an evil prejudice. And that's what the book of James is teaching us about here. So, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So what's the faith? The faith is the objective word. It's the system of truth from the mind of God revealed to us in the scriptures. That is the word that we are given. That is the faith that we are hold to. We are to hold to. And so when we hold to it, that's our subjective believing. We have faith in the faith. We have faith in the faith. The faith is the system of truth that's been revealed. And we are to believe it. Now, the ninth commandment in the larger catechism, I would commend to you that you read the whole thing, that you think about it. I've given to you here a small piece. I've given you the negative element of it. The bottom of page two, and it continues into page three. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The beginning of it's going to give us the general principles, and that's going to move into particular applications. The sins that are forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth. Right? So, prejudging the truth or setting things up to be prejudged. Not following law, process, and justice. And the good name of our neighbors, prejudicing the good name of our neighbors. So, prejudicing things, setting things up to be judged negatively against our neighbor's good name. As well as our own. If you do stupid things that make it so that your own good name is prejudiced against in the general population or in front of even a few people, that is contrary to the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment deals with reputation and it deals with truth-telling. Reputation and truth-telling. Now, these things are especially warned against in the Ninth Commandment in public judicature, which is a fun word. I love the word judicature. It has to do with the root of judicial or judging. It has to do with justice. So public justice, public due process, procedural justice in public courts. There are only two types of public courts. The civil magistracy, which judges criminal and civil matters, matters of contracts, things like that. And the court of the church, which believers ought to go to first. If you have a conflict with a believer who is in good standing, they're a professing believer, they're in good standing in the church, and you do not go to the church court first, what you are doing is disobeying 1 Corinthians that teaches us the obligation to go before believing judges first. And so we have that responsibility as a part of our following of process. Now, there's particular examples in the larger catechism of this idea, right? We're not supposed to prejudice the truth. We're not supposed to prejudice our neighbor's good name. We're not supposed to prejudice our own good name, especially in matters of public judicature. So here are examples of that. Giving false evidence. Suborning false witnesses. Calling a witness that you know or have reason to believe is going to lie. Wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause. 
outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil. You're already probably beginning to think, wait, 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 pause, slow down, explain more of that. No, it's not the focus today, but you should think about these things. And I have preached on these things in the past. Rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. Forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from others or complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring. Partiality. Partial censuring. Making a judgment that's negative and speaking it out, especially from a public court, without going through proper process, without dealing with people as equal under the law. Misconstruing intentions, words, and actions. Flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God. It's a type of partiality. We owe honor to people who have gifts. Aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities. You ever get curious about looking into issues that are problems from other people? The unnecessary discovering of infirmities. You should resist that. Raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against a just defense. There is nothing so partial as to refuse to hear somebody's defense when they tell you they have reason in the word of God, why something is just. Evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration. Scornful contempt. One of the things that James is going to preach against here in this letter, he's going to teach against here in this letter, is the scornful contempt of the poor. And he's also going to teach against the fond admiration of the rich because somebody's rich they don't deserve honor industry deserves honor gifts deserve honor wealth by itself does not deserve honor if you are a servant of somebody who's wealthy you owe them honor because of their position of authority in the household that's different from honoring somebody just for wealth there was a time when job was poor and he received scornful contempt from his friends They would not hear his just defense properly. They just assumed he was wrong because he was poor. All the things that he was suffering must be because of some great sin. Do not be Job's friends. Except maybe Elihu. Breach of lawful promises. Neglecting such things as are of good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves we're not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. So there's a long list of stuff. Reputation's a big deal. False testimony's a big deal. True testimony's a good deal. A big deal. 
So I want to spend a little more time on fond admiration. Okay, because our, our own society does much to proclaim the importance of not assuming negative things about the poor. So this is a, this is a cause celeb in our culture, and so I'd prefer to not prop it up so much. And so what I want to do is I want to move to the fond admiration of the rich, which I think is a tendency that is in our hearts. And the reason is because rich people have stuff and they drip money. Rich people have stuff and they drip money. Being around rich people, you you read success manuals, you mean management manuals, self-management manuals, they all say you're the sum of the five people that you're closest to that you spend the most time with. And so you want to have success in life, get rid of all your poor friends, only get rich friends. You see that book after book after book after book. That is fond admiration. We are called to associate with the lowly. It is a commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to associate with the lowly. So fond admiration. Treating a person with honor above others than yourself without warrant for the additional honor. Now you should outdo each other in showing honor to each other. And there is honor that you should give to the poor brother and to the rich brother alike. But giving the rich brother additional honor just because he's rich. Giving the rich brother additional honor just because he's rich is undue and it's unjust. Jude 1.16 says, These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. We flatter the rich, because we want advantage, we want their favor, we want their stuff. Acts 12.22 Here the people flattered Herod, and God did not flatter him. He killed him. And the people have gave a, a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, and not of a man. Right? Because Herod didn't reject that, the Holy Spirit slayed him. So flattery is closely associated with fond admiration. Let's think about this. Who are the proper targets of honor? The fifth commandment is the category of the law that teaches us where honor is owed. The fifth commandment is, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. By the way, I didn't include the citations of the ninth commandment forbidding. It's like got 45 chunks of citations. (laughs) Each of those words has a citation set of verses. I took the one for fond admiration. So there's a lot there to study. There's a lot to consider there. So who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts. And especially, as a particular honor, to those that are by God's ordinance over us in a place of authority. Notice there are only three places of authority that are listed. These are the three covenant institutions besides the individual. The household, the church, and the state. The only societies that are not voluntary societies that you are obligated to be into, whether you want to or not, is a family, a church, and a state. To be required to be a part of something else is injustice and oppression. Things like requiring people to be part of a labor union, having closed shops to prevent free association, things like that. 
laws that require association from anything other than the covenant institutions are sin. They are oppression. Authorities in the family, the church, and the commonwealth are over you by God's appointment. Now, they can lose their authority by breaking covenant. But if they are an authority in a covenant institution and they have not broken covenant, then you are bound to obey them in lawful commands. Not unlawful commands, lawful commands. Because I have spent much time on this, I will not belabor it, and I am going to move on. If you want more teaching on it, go back to Romans 13. Now, the places where honor is due, age, gifts, authority in the family, church, and commonwealth. I want to talk a little bit about gifting. Gifting includes reputed gifting. So Elon Musk, not a believer, no credible profession of faith. He's rich. We shouldn't honor him because he's rich. However, if you meet the man and you don't honor him as a particularly skilled, gifted individual and acknowledge that you might have something to learn from him about technology or business, you're a fool. He is owed honor for his reputed gifts. So acknowledging gifting is different from acknowledging wealth. If Elon Musk loses it all on Twitter and SpaceX and Tesla and the Boring Company and whatever other 50,000 companies he probably owns, if he loses it all, he would still be owed honor, even though he's not a believer, because he's gifted. You would have a duty to honor that gifting. Do you see the difference between money and gifting? Now, age is also something that requires honor. The greater the distance in age, the more there should be a plainness about that difference and the honor owed to it. I would particularly mark out for you the area of young, middle, and old. Okay, so this idea of the gray hair representing the old, there's a particular honor there. We are supposed to stand for the gray-haired. Right? That's what we're commanded to do in Leviticus. That is a sign of honoring. We're also taught elsewhere we stand with the reading of the word of God. There, there's things like that. The standing is a sign of honor that we are commanded to give in particular places. Now, age is a, is a thing that is the lowest of these things. Someone who's older but less gifted should still honor the more gifted person in their area of gifting and seek to learn from them in that. So age is the lowest of these. Gifting is next, and authority is more important than any of those. So the order of honoring. So if you're supposed to honor the aged, you should also honor the gifted. You should also honor the authority. So there's this way of honoring that we are obligated to do. Now, one of the things that we see here is that there is a lawful basis of giving additional honor. There's a lawful basis of giving additional honor. There's also unlawful basis for giving additional honor. Wealth, cleanliness, and beauty are common ones. Wealth, cleanliness, and beauty. And we all are biased to honor those. Now, wealth is a good thing. You should seek wealth. Cleanliness is a good thing. You should seek to be clean. Beauty is a good thing. 
You should seek to be beautiful as far as you have been gifted, to be able to attire yourself well and to hold yourself in good bearing. But we are not to give additional honor to it. Page four. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and bright is a better translation here, the idea of bright versus filthy, right? You wear a white shirt and it's clean, it's bright. You wear a white shirt and it's filthy, less bright, right? This is the the contrast here. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the partiality there, the, the word for partiality is not the same as, as receiving the face. It's a different word. Here we have the diacrithete. That is the same root as earlier on it was translated as doubting. Okay, so the translators of the New King James have accurately shown that there's a connection between the word partiality here and the word partiality above. What James is teaching us is that partiality is a type of doubting. Partiality is a type of doubting. You doubt the word of God and you judge by the appearance of things. You doubt the word of God and you judge by the appearance of things. This is an anti-empirical argument. This relates back to Genesis with the fall. With Eve, she looked on the tree and she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and good for eating and, by the account of Satan, good for knowledge. She trusted her senses and she trusted the words of a liar rather than the word of God. So that partiality is a type of doubting where our operating system is disordered. We are not judging by proper parameters. That's the problem. And so what we need to do is to reprogram our thinking to process by the proper parameters. We need to judge according to the rules of judgment given by the Word of God. Now, the two people walk in, one's really clean, Nicely tired, gold ring. Another one walks in, filthy. You got one nice chair, and you got one place to stand. Which one should you give the place to sit to? If you said the rich one, you're judging with partiality. If you said the poor one, you're judging with partiality. Whichever one you greet first, you would generally want to give them the honor of a guest. The undue honoring of somebody because of wealth is sin. And the undue honoring of somebody because of poverty is sin. At the same time, you see a magistrate walk through the door. Give that guy a nice seat. You owe him honor. Different. It's different. Somebody who's reputed for great gifting, is it okay to honor him? And give him a nicer seat? Yes. You see somebody who is aged, 
or infirm, and you give them a nice seat. You absolutely should have done that. If you're young, and there's somebody who's aged that comes in, and there's not a seat, give them your seat. There's an honor that's due to age and gifting and to station. There's a difference between age, gifting, and station, and wealth, beauty, and cleanliness. Now, one of the ways that we can deal with the poor is we can give them a bad place, you stand here, or we can give them a place that's dishonorable. It's, we assume that because somebody is poor, they should be under our governance. Sit at my footstool. That's a sign for being under authority. The wealthy do not rule over the poor in general. But we do hear in the book of Proverbs the idea that the wealthy rule over the poor. What's that about? It's about the fact that the wealthy are the ones who get to hire servants. Is every poor person a servant to every rich person? No. In general, the wealthy are the ones that hire the poor, though. And so that's the tendency of things, and it's not a general obligation. What it is is a particular obligation that manifests itself over and over and over again. Servants in the household. So I hope that distinction is clear. The general idea of serving the rich versus particular poor persons taking a job and serving a particular rich person. It's the same thing as the idea that women in general don't submit to men in general. Women submit to their fathers or to their husbands. They don't submit to men in general. Women can exercise authority over men as servants or as sons. So we have the same sort of thing there. It's only by covenant that a woman submits to a man, and it's only by the covenant institution of the household with employment that a poor person submits to a rich person. Now, look at point six. Giving honor or dishonor just on the basis of these things. This is forbidden. We have a natural aversion to to filth, and that's good, because we should want to be clean. But at the same time, we can have an evil aversion to filth when we treat a person who is filthy as though they are immoral by the very nature of being unclean. We have a, a duty to understand the situation. There was a period of time where Job looked very filthy. He's scraping boils with shards of pottery on the ground. You seek to understand the situation. Now, you're going to find... That in most cases, if somebody is coming to church totally filthy, you're going to find that there's some sort of disorder in their lives. But you're not allowed to assume that that's why they're filthy. Wealthy, clean man. We're not to, dis- we're not to honor a guest above others just because he looks more wealthy and clean than other guests. That's a favoritism based upon an evil desire to advance ourselves or the church through the arm of the flesh. The arm of the flesh is any pragmatic thing that's not in the law of God. Any pragmatic thing that's not in the law of God. That's the arm of the flesh. Using means that are not appointed to try to advance ourselves or the church. You should think, if you want to show favoritism to a rich person in order to try to get them to put their tithes into the church, basically the same thing you would think if you were thinking about getting a fog machine for the worship. Arm of the flesh. This is something that is not appointed. And we should not 
use it as a means of attracting membership. We are to honor all guests in the assembly and to seek impartiality and the love of strangers. The love of strangers, also translated hospitality in other places, is what we're called to. So we love strangers in the assembly and we seek to get to know them so we can then deal with them according to their character. And we should also seek to invite people into our homes that are strangers because hospitality in the home is where we get to know people and have opportunity to serve them more. Now, should you be foolish if you're, if you're just taking in somebody who looks disordered in their life and they're becoming particularly foolish or particularly fil- filthy, right? You might go, if a person is filthy and homeless, there's an increased probability that there is some sort of a mental disorder or sin tendency, right? And so what you're going to do is seek to be intelligent about safety there. There's a difference between dishonoring a person and seeking to be secure in your person. Taking measures to keep yourself secure is not dishonoring. It is prudent. And I would suggest this to you. Just because a person is clean and looks rich does not mean that they are safe to bring into your home. You should take precautions with strangers, period. There is a duty to guard yourself and your house in hospitality. And you also have a duty to honor strangers until you have reason to dishonor them. This love of the stranger and the desire for security must both be dealt with. And so what we do is we seek to, in particular, if you have a home where you have multiple men, young men in the home, things like that, you are able to take more risks than a person who is either a woman or who is the only man in the home and then there are women he has duty to to protect. There are more risks that you can take when you have multiple men in the home. And at the same time, you can be hospitable without bringing a person directly into your home. And so the idea of getting to know people, seeking to draw them in with hospitality, and seeking to understand their condition, these are things we're called to do, whether they are poor or whether they are rich, whether they are clean or whether they are filthy. We have a duty to honor that. If you have a problem with that, you don't have a problem with what I'm saying. You have a problem with the Word of God. The problem is what James is saying. And it seems inconvenient. But the word is filthy. The word is filthy. Filthy clothes. Now, verse 4. You have not shown partiality among yourselves. and become judges with evil thoughts. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If we say, sit here, if we give honor to the rich man, the clean man, and dishonor to the poor man, we're showing partiality, we're showing doubting of the word of God. And we're doing that among ourselves. And we become judges with evil thoughts. Now here's one thing I also want to point out. Filthiness was more common in the ancient world. It's more difficult to get, you don't have running water in most places. You, you do in some Roman cities have running water. And there's difficulty of getting clean. And there's a lot of physical work going on. So one thing I would say is this. There are signs of mental instability that are often associated with homelessness and filthiness in our day. Look for those 
look for those. Do not assume them, but do look for them. And if it's over a course of time, we should be able to help people who are filthy and giving them mercy ministry instantly to then try to bring them in and to see if they're able and willing to keep themselves in a place that's more stable. So if somebody is in need, they're hungry, they don't have proper clothing, and they need help, we should use Mercy Ministry funds to help a person immediately for their instant relief and then seek to disciple them from there and then seek to help them from there and evaluate them from there. We will be abused. We will be used. They will trample on the money of the treasury of the Lord Jesus Christ, but sometimes they won't. And when we are abused and used, there will be blessing. And when we're not, there will be blessing. And so that willingness to take risk does not just apply to your own money. It applies to the treasury of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to risk money to help people who are downtrodden and in a bad place. And in the initial engagement, we have to have a charitable interpretation. And then we judge them by their follow-up behavior. That is impartiality under the law of God. That is believing the law of God. And to not believe it is to doubt. And you may remember the first mentioning of doubting in the book and about prayers. And notice he then goes into prayers in the later part of James chapter 2 and talks about saying, be blessed, be warmed and filled, and then not helping. We are called to do this. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Go to page 5. Judges with evil thoughts. Being a judge who has evil thoughts, doubting the word of God, is thinking with categories of discrimination that are not lawful before God. Thinking beyond what is written. Here's another place that talks about this. Partiality, by the way, creates division. Partiality creates division. Partiality can be in the form of fond admiration, or it can be in scornful contempt. Partiality creates division. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6-7. to Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? Notice there's that same root there, the differing from each other. Who makes you differentiate? Who makes you partially judge one from the other? It's another way of translating that. And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So notice this. Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians not only that we shouldn't be partial, but he's also teaching even in the duty of honoring gifting and age and station. Aren't gifting, age, and station all gifts from God? Even when we honor people with gifting, age, and station, we need to be careful to not create 
a partiality or fractiousness or division that is unjustified, we need to be careful to have loyalty to Christ. Loyalty to Christ looks like honoring multiple pastors who are faithful and not picking one as the one to honor above the others in a way as to differentiate their offices. That is how the bishopric was established. Not being partial looks like when one teacher teaches heresy or false doctrine, holding their feet to the fire until they repent, and not just being a fond admirer of people who teach false things. Well, he's done so many other good things. Yeah, so when somebody commits adultery, should we just say, well, he's done so many other good things. Let's not discipline them. The, The pet sin of our age is not caring about doctrine and not holding teachers responsible for the words that leave their mouths. It is your duty to judge. It is your duty to hold teachers accountable for the words they say. And if they are unclear, to make them clarify. And when they clarify, if what they say is still wrong, to bring about repentance. And if they will not repent, to remove them from office. That is the duty towards those who have gifting and office and age, is to treat them according to law still. That is your duty towards me. That is your duty towards every officer. Now here are other examples of evil thinking that are common in addition to bias towards wealth and beauty and cleanliness. There's also the tendency towards racism, the hating of people who look different or have different origins. That is a pet sin of the age, and you can gain a lot of favor by focusing on it and trying to expand out the microscope of looking for it. Racism is possible by people who are minorities as well as people who are in the majority. It is a lie of our age that racism is only possible by people who are white. That is false. If you judge a white person, if you are a minority and you judge a white person on the basis of their race and have a prejudice on the basis of race alone, that is racism too. We are of one blood from Adam. We are of one blood from Noah. And we are united in the Lord Jesus Christ. And racism is foolishness, wickedness, and sin whether you are talking about white oppression or whether you are talking about basing a judgment against a minority on something other than their character. It is sinful to judge somebody for repentant sin in a way that prevents you from having fellowship with them. It is sinful for you to not hold unrepentant sin against somebody. When somebody has unrepentant sin, if somebody is under church censure justly and you do not hold it against them, you are committing the sin of fond admiration. The differentiation of sex. There are two things here to be worried about. First of all, we are it is lawful and it is required that we differentiate in how we deal with people based upon sex. Sex is a gifting Masculinity is a gifting, and femininity is a gifting. Therefore, there is a basis, looking at the larger catechism, for example, talking about dealing with people, honoring them based upon gifting. That is a gifting. that You deal with people according to that gifting. We are told some of the things to do. For example, the idea of the husband dealing with the wife as the weaker vessel. 
That is a differentiation on the basis of sex. Which office you enter into in marriage? Are you a husband, father, and master? Or are you a wife, mother, and mistress? Those are based upon sex. There's a difference of how you treat people on the basis of sex in the Word of God. We are called to not carry out chauvinism. Chauvinism is treating women as though they are not equal in essence to men. They are equal in essence to men. They have humanity. Their humanity is a rational creature with a body. And we are to treat them as being equal in essence. Feminism, depending on the form of it, feminism as a reaction to chauvinism, feminism teaches the destruction of patriarchal institutions, and feminism also teaches either that there should be no differentiation based upon sex or that women should be treated better than men. Part of the reasons for this are, for example, the reality that most violent crime is committed by men. That's true. At the same time, bodily sacrifice in the form of taking on dangerous duties are also overwhelmingly taken on by men. So when you think about those two things side by side, there are differences between men and women. And to say that because of some attribute of womanhood that women are superior to men is false and a lie. Men and women are equal in essence. This is also a doctrine against Transgenderism, which essentially teaches that people are not essentially masculine or feminine, is a lie. It is a lie. God made them male and female. You are male in your body and in your soul. And you are female in your body and in your soul. The difference between male and female in the soul is a difference in how the fifth commandment works on you in your heart. If you are a man, you recognize your relative duties by your conscience, to deal with women differently than men. And if you're a woman, you realize your place and role differently based upon being a woman and how you would deal with men and women. One of the obvious ones, when there is physical danger, men should be careful to seek to protect women. That's an obvious one. Transgenderism denies the distinctions and suggests that these things are fluid. They are not. It is false. It is a lie. It's a lie of our age. So biblical patriarchy teaches a few things that have to be kept in mind. And we need to not get rid of any of them. One, there's a biblical equality of essence between male and female. Women do not submit in marriage because they are inferior in essence to men. The doctrine of the equality of essence of male and female is rooted in the doctrine of the equality of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father is not superior to the Son. The Son is not superior to the Spirit. They are not superior to each other in essence. But by covenant, by the covenant between the members of the Trinity, by a promise before the world began, there is a differentiation of role. The Father commands the Son, and the Son obeys. The Father and the Son command the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit obeys. This is not based upon an inequality of essence. It is based upon covenanted roles. This gives great dignity to the role of a wife. This gives great dignity to the fact that men are called to lead and sacrifice in church and state. 
The differentiation of role is not a differentiation of essence. At the same time, there must be differentiation for office, and to deny this is a wicked denial of God's law order. Many people in the evangelical world are willing to say that the husband should be the head of the wife. Many people in the evangelical world are willing to say that church officers ought only to be men, and this is plain. But many people in the evangelical world are unwilling to say that civil office ought to be held by men and not by women. The book of Isaiah plainly teaches it is a curse for children to hold civil office, and nobody gasps. But when you read the same sentence, and it talks about a curse of being ruled by women, everybody gasps. You know you're on to something when you read the word of God, and everybody gasps. So, that reality in the law of God teaches us that there is a law order, not based upon essence, but based upon the covenant structure that God has given to us. Masculinity and femininity are gifts. We are called to treat each other differently, to care for each other's modesty in different ways based upon our sexes, and to be careful to deal with each other in other ways that are fruitful based upon the sexes. And I don't have time to go through all of them now. But those are some of the major heads of doctrine. Page 6. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? Okay, so this is something that the Bible does very well. It attacks unbiblical prejudice by showing facts that undermine the prejudice. That's what was just done there. Hey, don't the rich oppress you poor? And and don't they drag you into courts? Don't they use the legal systems to coerce you unjustly? Do you think the only people that have ever done that were rich people? No, but is there a prominence to it? If you're rich and you're unjust, you have more resources to go into unlawful lawsuits, and you have more resources by which you can oppress the poor. And you have more poor people you're going to interact with and then cheat them of wages. So there's going to be this tendency for there to be more action there. So the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20. You know, 20% of the oppressors cause 80% of the oppression. Right? This, is, this is the case. And those are going to tend to be rich people who have more power to oppress. So the idea of the poor getting honor, how do they get honor? They get honor because they're in the image of God. And they get honor because of their faith. Doing righteousness. Those are things that you can get honor with as poor. And those things will tend towards a growth in wealth, won't they? The rich get dishonor in their unrighteousness. If you're given much rule, if you have lots of property to rule, and you rule unjustly, there's a great deal of, un- of dishonor there. And they who are given much, well, much is expected of them. And they are going to be judged more harshly. Prejudice against the poor dishonors the image of God in them, and it dishonors God and the faith that he's given. Using the legal system for oppression by coercive power of the state, and using money to create vexing lawsuits, and using the courts for persecution of Christians, these are all things that bring dishonor, they are sin, they are wickedness, and we are called to be careful to try to go through conflict resolution in a righteous way, and again, to use church courts first. Now, one other thing I want to point out in our own time and application of this, the ACLU, 
Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, various godless legal and lobbying entities enter into vexing lawsuits against churches and against Christian institutions over and over and over again to drain their resources and in an effort to seek to get bad precedent that can be used as a club to bludgeon the churches. We should be aware that those entities are funded by rich people. The godless rich support the godless institutions. And so we should be aware that that is still going on today. To have a bias towards people just because they're rich is foolish. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So this partiality, we go back to the word receiving the face, okay? This is, we're switching back to the other word for partiality. This partiality, I want to put two things side by side for you for just a minute to help you to reconcile them. It might seem like they're at tension. One, the book of Proverbs over and over again asserts that if you do, wis- if you do wise things and if you apply the law of God, you're going to get wealthy. It just says it over and over and over and over again. The book of James says to not judge on the basis of wealth. The book of Proverbs is not giving you a set of rules to judge other people when it talks about that tendency. It's telling you for your own life, pursue the knowledge of God as opposed to money, and you'll get money too. It is not saying, and judge everybody else by that. The book of Job was given to us to help us to make sure we don't have that mistake. The book of James is a wisdom book in the New Testament, and it helps us to not make that mistake either. So we hold these two things. One, for yourself, make sure that you realize there are temporal rewards for keeping the law of God. And for other people, do not look to the circumstances of their lives to say that they are certainly wicked or dishonorable or that they are certainly honorable and righteous, but rather get to know their character and behavior and what they say. Verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. This is an assertion of the covenant of works. The royal law is a law for kings, It is a law from the highest king, from the king of kings. It is also the law of liberty. It is a law for kings, and that is a law for free people who are not slaves, who are prophets, priests, and kings. And this is a law that shows you how to rule. It is also a royal law in that it comes from God, and he defines liberty. When we apply the royal law, what we're doing is we're acting according to Scripture. We are being kings. We are exercising righteousness and justice in our choice. And so I want to draw you to think about the King of Kings for a minute. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 45. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself 
We've been called out of the world to Christ. And giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. Officers, laws, and censures are the way that Christ visibly governs his people. If we do not honor officers, if we do not honor the law, and if we do not honor censures, who are we dishonoring? The king who gave them. In bestowing saving grace upon his elect, right? one of the ways he rules us is by subduing us to himself. He takes unbelieving, rebellious servants and makes them believing, submissive servants. His grace does that irresistibly. And it is not common. It is particular. He rewards their obedience. Right? We don't obtain our justification before God by keeping the law perfectly. But we do obtain rewards. Those rewards are for those who are already justified. And those rewards are huge. We get a talent of gold here in this life and manage it well, and we get to govern a city forever. Correcting them for their sins, right? The way that Christ rules over us, He corrects us for our sins. He has not left us as illegitimate children. We are not bastards. We are adopted sons. We are legitimate issue. We are, by law, the sons of God. And we are corrected because God loves us as sons. He chastens us. Preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings. We're upheld. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, upholds us in our temptations and sufferings. He gives us fortitude, endurance, strength. Restraining and overcoming all of their enemies. He restrains the world, the flesh, and the devil so that we are not just crushed. So the gates of hell don't prevail against us in the assault. We are not treated like David treated Uriah the Hittite, sent to attack walls that we might die. Christ gives us strength to overcome. He doesn't set us up for sin. The restraining and overcoming of all of our enemies is something that we can overlook sometimes and not realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of them are restrained. And all of them are not just restrained. They are overcome. We overcome them all by the power of Christ. The world is subdued under our feet. The demonic powers are defeated by the advance of the church. Our flesh is overcome. These things are overcome. We have a tendency to think about the work of Christ as though there's this sort of grinding it out and there's not going to be advances. And that's a lie. And so you need to carry on knowing that you're on the path to victory. Powerfully ordering all things for His own glory. He's going to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. He's going to do it. And for their good. He's going to bless His saints. He's going to do it. 
and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. He takes vengeance in this life, and he also takes vengeance on the final day of judgment. This occurs in history, and it occurs on the last day. This is the way that he behaves as a king toward us. And do you know what law helps us to know how we can support the operation? Do you know what law gives us our marching orders? Do you know what law helps us to understand how methodologically we can do things the same way according to the standards of the army of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the royal law that came from the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And we are called to obey it in exhaustive detail and to know that it is a law that gives us dominion and gives the Lord Jesus Christ a manifest reign over the nations. It is to be applied in every sphere. There is no place it does not touch. It is a perfect law, and it is the law of liberty. It gives us freedom and shows us freedom, the freedom of kings. It is a royal law. This law is the law of love. It teaches us how to love our neighbor and how to love God. And the second table teaches us how to seek the good of our neighbor. What's love? Love is seeking the good of the object. If you love a person, you want their good. If you don't love a person, you don't want their good. And the law of God tells you how to seek the good of a person. So we are told, do not murder, do not commit adultery as examples. The other thing we need to be aware of is our neighbor is not just our brother. Lord Jesus Christ was asked, who is your neighbor? And he said, Samaritans too. Right? He was talking to a Jew. The Jew was trying to go, the neighbor, is that synonymous with brother? Do I only have to keep the law towards people who are professors with a credible profession of faith? No. You have to keep the law of God toward everybody. Everyone is your neighbor. It is not just your brothers, it's your neighbors. That's a broader term. And so I have talked to people before who try to take the law of God very seriously, but then thought it didn't apply to unbelievers. And I literally went to that text and showed it to them, and they still were unpersuaded. The Lord Jesus Christ shows us that even those who are our enemies are our neighbors, and we are called to love our enemies. We apply the law to them. That doesn't mean you can't defend yourself. That doesn't mean that there's no criminal penalties for them. That's love, too. It's established in the law. Self-defense is an act of love for yourself and for your neighbor to stop a great wickedness of murder. Just defense is love. And using the civil ordinances to administer criminal penalties is love for the person receiving the penalty that they might be encouraged to repent and for the society and the people in it that they would be protected. And for God, that his ordinances would not be profaned in the earth and the church not extinguished. A world without civil magistrates is the world before the flood. The civil magistracy was established to prevent that the earth be filled with violence. Love is defined by the law of God. Fond admiration or partiality recognizes the face rather than the gifts, age, and authority. It's a violation of the royal law. It's a violation of the law of liberty. And it shows that you are a slave and not a king and not free. You are a slave to seeking fleshly benefits by the arm of the flesh. So, close out here. Look at verse 10. Forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He is guilty of all. If you keep the law everywhere and break it in one place, like Adam, if you break it in one place, you're guilty of breaking the whole of it because it's a system. 
It's an ethical system. It's a united covenant. It is not parts. It is a whole covenant. The terms of the covenant require the keeping of the whole covenant. If you want to make works a part of your justification, then you can go to hell because you will. If you think justification is a part of what is being taught here, how you're justified before God, then you have a false gospel. This is not teaching that you are justified before God by perfect obedience because that's already failed. You've already broken it. You have inherited guilt from Adam and you have a corrupt nature from your first moment of conception. You are guilty under the law of God. If you've broken one part, you've broken the whole and you deserve to go to hell. We are not justified by law-keeping. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone. Because he said to us, do not commit adultery. And he also said to us, don't murder. Now if we commit adultery, if we don't commit adultery, but we do murder, then we become a transgressor of the law. We deserve to go to hell. Do not mix faith and works. Do not mix them. Because when you do that, you have just reestablished the covenant of works. Do you realize that the covenant of works required faith too? It required the believing of God's word. It required the believing of everything that God commanded. It required obedience to the first table as well as the second. Faith in works is just the covenant of works. Faith alone is the covenant of grace. If you mix them, you have another covenant, and it is not one that you can be saved in. If you break the law at any part, you've broken the whole. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now we are, under the covenant of works, guilty. But being in the covenant of grace, we've been, we acknowledge our guilt. We look at the grace of God. He's paid for our sins in Christ. And we are called now to live in gratitude, doing what's been commanded. That gratitude, that life of gratitude, a response to grace is not a life seeking to obtain the favor of God. It's a life knowing that you have already obtained the favor of God by the work of another, and that you now can joyfully be free from what you were once enslaved to. We are to live as those who are under that law, the law of liberty. And we are to live as free men. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is calling us back to think about the poor man. You look at the poor man, he has less resources, he may be dirty, but we are called to use mercy ministry to care for him. There are people who are filthy in their sins, and they repent of them. We are called to forgive them. Mercy ministry and mercy towards each other are both rooted in the reality that we have received mercy for all of our sins. And the mercy of God given to us, allows us to be able to be those who give mercy to others. That's why we pray, forgive us our debts, and we forgive our debtors. We should not be as the servant who has been forgiven a fortune and yet demands a pittance from his neighbor when that neighbor has repented. Comments, questions, objections from those who are Voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Boyston.
Thank you, Mr. Boyston. So the, the idea that racism is a term that is problematic because there's only one race of men, I absolutely agree. That's what I meant when I was saying that we are of one blood uh, with Adam and with Noah. Um, and so the idea that we are one race, racism is, I think, the assertion that humanity is broken into races, right? And uh, also the basis of using that to differentiate in terms of how you should treat people um, and having prejudices that are applied to the individual in every case. Um, so yeah, I think ethnicity or origin um, is, is a better thing to talk about, uh, the ethnos, the nations. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you, there's only one race of man, there's only one kind from which we are born, um, and so I think that's a good corrective, thank you for bringing that up. Um, Mr. Marsh. Yeah, thank you. So, should we honor gifts um, whether they are developed or not, or whether they're used or not? Um, gifting is only evidenced to us by its use. So, someone can claim to be really good at something or, you know, whatever, but if the gifting is not used, there's no evidence. It's, a, it's an uncredible claim to have that. So, the reputed gifting is more important than the reality of some sort of natural gifting. Um, the, the, the use of it. Um, is the way it's evidenced and the way it's manifested and the way that it should be honored. So if somebody has a gift and they squander it, that's to be dishonored. Um, that is to be treated as, as a basis for dishonor. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's great. Sorry, let me cut you off. You done? Okay. So, so the, the question is, with an example like Hitler, where there's an obviously gifting, but gifting is used for enormous evil, how do you deal with that? One of the ways you deal with it is by acknowledging the power, right? Think about Satan, for example. We go, well, Satan is a fearsome enemy, and we acknowledge that. We don't trifle with Satan. Um, one of the dangers of, of Nazism and, and Hitlerianism um, is the fact that in our culture now, people have no idea what it is. Um, they, have, they have made it sound so stupid as to not be something that is dealt with seriously. Here's what Nazism is. Nazism is the belief, first of all, that nations are really races and that there's a differentiation of how we should treat people based upon race. And so national socialism or race-oriented socialism. And then it's socialistic in that it tries to take things and make the state have power to collectivize and to control the things that should be private property. And that is 
highly attractive to people. Socialism is highly attractive to people because of their covetousness and envy and their desire to see things be efficient in whatever way they think is efficient. Um, and so this desire to have the government come in and fix things and to take control of things and to collectivize things that were private is attractive because businesses want to collectivize their losses and privatize their gains and people who don't have money want to collectivize the gains and then privatize the losses and so there's this tendency of wanting to to take the things and to put them in a centralized control whenever there's a covetous response and so unless we have a strong intellectual defense against socialistic tendency with the private property order of God's law and unless we also can argue against a sort of race or ethnos-based associative system for social order, uh, we're not going to be able to overcome that. Nazism very closely relates to the new system of cultural Marxism uh, brought into the ethnic or racial sphere, um, and what we see in terms of the discussion of white privilege uh, being used there is a sort of a bringing back in of that with socialism. So people don't want to think about this whole, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter, you know, white privilege stuff as being somehow the same ideology as Nazism, but frankly it is, right? And so we, our failure to label it and to be able to deal with things in terms of um, a, the, a, that tribalism and to be able to deal with things in terms of socialism makes it so that we are not properly respecting the danger of Nazism and a kind of Hitlerian demagogism. And so we need to realize that demagogues are a real problem, especially in democratic societies. And we need to realize that socialism and um, ethnic tension are easy points for demagogues to grab hold of. And so the idea of eat the rich or the idea of go after the majority and collect a bunch of you know, you know, alienated groups to go after them, that's an intelligent process that Hitler very intelligently managed and he selected targets to go after them and he used the Jews as a pretend power base to go after, right? And so it became the boogeyman that he was able to attack it was skillfully, intelligently done, and he was able to get the intelligentsia of the nation to work for him. And so if we don't respect the gifting of wicked people like Stalin and Mao, and we don't realize the dangers that come there, then we are likely to fall into the same traps. That's how I think we're called to respect their giftings.